Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome. You're listening to Chef Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton. And once again, I'm very happy to tell you that I am broadcasting from Milan, Italy, at the Expo Milano 2015. And we are getting some of the most extraordinary chefs through here. We are wowing Italy and Europe. And today, today and tonight at J Bar, I think uh, we're going to have one of the best and brightest meals that we've had. And Ming Zai is here, and um, we're we're just going to get right into it, Ming. How, welcome to Italy. Nice uh, to be here. When did you get here? Um, you know, my wife and I have been here um, over a week. We did uh, oh. three days in Roma, which ah. was awesome. Um, we kind of liken Rome to like Atlanta, being southern, the southern hospitality kind of idea. I mean, the food obviously is not the same, but delicious food. Um, great pizza. Where'd you eat? Uh, we had a really nice meal at Rosciole. Um, beautiful. We had the cacio e pepe was like the most perfect ever. They have a great pizza joint just across around the corner with crispy pizzas the way I like it, thin crust, and you pick your own. But then we went to a place called Pizzarium, um after seeing, not only seeing the Vatican, the Sistine Chapel, hearing the Pope speak. Our luck was just like he was there on the really? Yeah, he was at St. Peter's Square speaking. We're like, oh, my God, there's the Pope, um, which is just amazing. Just, I am not Catholic, but it is to be there with six to 8,000 people uh, surrounded by nuns and priests is just a great, great feeling. And um, we had a really nice seafood meal at um, uh, Asante du Madre. They had, they're known for their beautiful, just fresh whole fish and, and raw shrimp and raw crayfish. Uh, delicious. Really good. I mean, just... The, How did you research it? I mean, really you know, I, I've li- oh, I asked all my chef friends, right? I asked Mario Batali, I asked Barbara Lynch. Uh, yeah. I yeah. happened to be in L.A. shooting Simply Ming right before, and just coincidentally, Suzanne Goyne just finished Alex's Lemonade that same night. So Mark Vitri was there and his whole crew. So we had oh. dinner together, oh. and Mark's like, you got to go here and there. We ended up, We then ended up at another great place called uh, Beer and Food, um, Beer and food spelled B-I-R then and F-U-D, so kind of German. <laughs> but but you know what? They had a they had thirty six microbrews on tap, which you don't think there is in Italy. Um, and around the corner from them was another pizza place, Dar Poeta, um, equally delicious. And they let um, so that was delicious. And then beer and food also has Bonchi, which is the same chef that does pizzerarium. So we had a lot of pizza, a lot of pasta. Uh, and then we shot up because the trains are so great here. We went all the way through Milan to Lake Como, which has just always been a dream of ours to uh, to go there. Your first time up there? Yeah, first time. It was actually our 20th anniversary, oh, so we're celebrating. So where did you stay up there? Uh, we stayed at Tremezza, the Grand Hotel Tremezza. It was, uh, it's just, it looked like Hotel Budapest. It was just out of the movies. <laughs> I, we really thought Cary Grant was going to just you know, walk by. It was just perfect. And it was perfect weather. 
They have the pool that's floating in the lake. Uh, it was unbelievable, and the sh- uh, the restaurant was excellent. The service was just top notch, and uh, it was one of those pinch you know pinch me moments that were really looking at this view into the mountains and and just fantastic food. Uh, the probably the Paul Bocuse of Italy, uh, Marchese, is a consulting chef at this oh. hotel. Oh. Uh, so he had his famous saffron risotto, right? The right. risotto milanese with the gold leaf. Right. Beautiful, these gigantic macaroni they call it with lobster. It was a, again another tremendous meal. Um, so we've been doing really well. Then we've only been here in Milan. This is our second night. Um, we Did you went, eat last night? We went to uh, uh, Antica Trattoria yes. Del Rosa, I think. Yeah. Really yeah. classic, lad. No seafood, only meat, only red wine. Did you have Delicious. the veal cataletta? Si, si, si. We had the veal. My, one of my chefs had the tribe. Another chef had the beef tartare. Uh, I also had something, the... The jumping risotto, right? The risotto al salto. Oh, I don't, yeah, I haven't it's, had that. It's a crispy risotto, uh, which was, you know, delicious as well. Um, and the risotto that's made here, it's, it is so, it is so perfectly, um, al dente. Each grain of rice is separate and they serve such a thin layer. Uh, it's something to, to, it's, it's totally a skill. It, okay, it's so all right, so now this is supposed to be all about Ming, not all about Milan. But this is the latest. This is the last. It's it's last five days of Ming. But uh, so the first thing I want to do is really ask you about where did you grow up? Um, what what were you eating? What 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 was Ming like at five years old? Hmm. Hungry, um, <laughs> still am. Uh, you know, I was born in Newport Beach, California, but barely spent time there. We ended up in Dayton, Ohio. So I'm uh, 18 years. I'm a Midwest boy. My dad was Wright at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, chief scientist. He's still at 86. What the, kind of science? Uh, he's the leading graphite designer in the world. So the planet just flew in the A-bus, Airbus A380. All his theories on using graphite material, composite materials was something he's been preaching for 70 years. So everything from space shuttle to B-1 bombers, which is why he was in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base at the time. Was he now, just a military employee, or was he no, in the he military? Actually, he was actually civilian at the Air yeah, Force, yeah. Uh, chief scientist, um, high, so high up in the government. And, and he would go and, and, at the time, just really travel the world and see what everyone else was doing with composite materials, including China and Russia. This is during the Cold War, um, and and. He, would he, he went into China. Oh, he they go, could. He would How? go there with the government knowledge to see their labs, to see what they were really doing. But of course, they only saw Lab A. They never saw the real labs. And just like when the Russians came here, we didn't show them the real labs. Um, and, but he would always debrief by the CIA in DC when he came back. And uh, but everything, you know, down to a golf shaft is composite materials. So so I grew up in that type of environment. Thinking, being a Chinese son, that I'm going to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And of course, I picked engineering because that's who my dad was. Um, but I, I, at five and six and seven, I literally was always in the kitchen. My parents were both great cooks. My mom's really the technical cook. She'll cook the so perfect. Your, your parents were born in the States? My parents were born in Beijing. I'm first generation. You're first generation. Yeah. ABC, right? Yeah, ABC. <laughs> um, and I have a side, something I'm very proud of. Um, it's, it's just it's an incredible story. The um, there's a great professor uh, Henry Lewis Gates at Harvard, yes. who has which he did on me uh, last year, and he's which went back 36 generations, and my kids are generation 36. So he was already ahead of the game. He was already as deep as almost anyone else. Period. So that went back to like 800 AD. Um, wow. And so he got to start with that. 
But the story is unbelievable. So he takes this book, gets a Chinese researcher that goes to China for two weeks, who just miraculously ends up in the Shanghai Hunan area where my grandparents were from. And through folklore, they used to have these things called steelies, which are these carved uh, uh, stone um, historical records because there was no paper then. So they would carve and families would carve into the stone their history so they would keep record of it. Um, and through and through really hearsay, this researcher says, you got to go where these two rivers meet. There's one steely left. She goes there. It's a steely on my family. The only one on my family. This steely not only confirms our book, which we already knew was legit because it's been passed down. And I'm actually in charge of being the youngest of my generation. Uh, it proved that it was what legit. What do you mean you're in charge? You have the I, book I, physically? I, now, I we had, It's copies of the book, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm in charge of recording my kids and my my nephews and nieces. Oh. And then and actually Henry, my youngest son, is the youngest of the next generation. So this book that we already have has the first name. So I'm the Ming generation, uh, predestined from 34 generations ago. So my brother's name is Ming Shi. I'm Ming Hao, Ming Hui, Ming Jie, Ming Yao. Those are all our cousins. Um, everyone calls me, of course, Ming Sai. Everyone calls my brother Ming Sai. It's a little confusing in the business world, but we get along, uh, and it works. Uh, so my kids are Jia. Jia means family or foundation. So my first son is Jia Long, which is foundation or house of the dragon. He was born 2000, which is year of the dragon, which my wife and I are both dragons. And then Henry is Jia Ming, you know, I guess after me. Um, but their kids are already named all the way down. Right for for it's supposed to be this goes for sixty generations so it's already after the sixtieth generation which is another twenty six then either wait wait wait, wait. we were at thirty seven we're, thir- we're at we're thirty six my kids are the thirty seventh where does sixty come in well this book has the names already predestined to the sixtieth oh so, so my kids kids already have their first part of their name and their kids and kids all the oh so your Ming was I'm pre- predestined your last ago. name Sai everybody Sai is everybody but but Ming was predestined how long ago generations ago so I'm generation thirty five my kids are generation thirty six. And it goes to 60. But that's not the amazing part. The most amazing part is then this researcher with the steely information ended up in Shanghai at the Rare Books Library, the National Library. And under glass was the same book, the same cover, same Chinese characters, Thai family generation, that whole thing. But it was bigger and it was red. And, this is the, and it was the original. It's thicker. This book goes back to 2500 B.C., no. My great-great-grandfather, a hundred generations ago, was Huang Di, one of the original Chinese emperors. Wow. It's like, are you wow. kidding me? And it's documented. <laughs> it's documented. And But oh, if you think God. about it, if you, can gra- if you can grasp that concept, first of all, that had to be male-born every generation, yes. otherwise it wouldn't continue. Right. Huang Di invented Chinese. Huang Di invented governmental the, system. Chinese the language. The, he invented Chinese. This is 2,500 so B.C. So there have been dialects all spoken, and he standardized he, it? I, I haven't spoken. Made a right... <laughs> <laughs> he, oh, but he made the written, the, the well, written they language. They, they, have, they didn't have paper yet, oh, so, right? So. And by the way, Tsai Lun, which is about 63 generations ago, invented paper. Who's also in... In your Yeah, family. so if he patented that process, I, I would really? own right. the world. Hey, Can you imagine? You'd own Rome. I, I mean, those, those Johnny-come-latelys. Johnny piece of paper. <laughs> uh, but it's just, you know, when I was so... So we had this family tree that they gave that William... That we call him Skip. 
it's it's taller than the ceiling, and it starts with Huangdi and goes all the way. So, how many people are size? Are size? That's a great. You know what? That's a great question. I, uh, thousands. It would have to be. So, anyone with the name Tsai? Well, no, because if you're Smith, you're not necessary. You know, if your last name is Washington or you're George Washington. But we know it's a direct lineage in this book, the rare books that's basically documented. So, what kind of pressure does that put on you? (laughs) You know, being the. The 100 generation side. Emperor. Emperor. Well, I'll tell you the funny story. So, we go home after this whole thing happens, and I open this to my two kids and wife and say, look, guys. First, you can't say this because the show hasn't aired yet. But let me just show you something. Uh, and this is something we need to be proud of and be proud to be Chinese and be proud to be a Psy. But we actually go back. You guys are the 101st generation Psy. And Henry, who is my now 13, he was 12 at the time, he jumps up and down and we all hug and scream because it's a big news. Yeah. And so, dad, 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 what's this mean? You know, he's thinking, do we, like, is there a gold chair going to come up our driveway? With <laughs> do you have a palace yeah, back do we, in the do old we have, country? Do we own the Great Wall? I'm like, Henry, it means trash is still Tuesdays, and you still have to feed Buddy every morning, and you got to do your homework and brush your teeth and floss. It means, you know, it means you can be even prouder to be a Psy. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't feel more pressure. I mean, I'm, I've always been proud to be Chinese. I speak Chinese. Both my kids are taking Chinese in school. Um, and, and I very unbiasedly, or no, very biasedly, Still think Chinese is the best food in the world, and, and that's what that's always been the glue of our whole family. Just growing up in Dayton, Ohio, for your original question, while eating dinner, we'd always be talking about where we're we eating next or what are we eating next. Period. It's just food, 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 food. And and my dad would, for example, again being this engineer, he would hold these graphite conferences in France. Thierry Massard is one of his partners in Think Composites, his company. And I'm actually the godfather of their first son, Sebastian, so really close family friends. He would first call Taiwan. This is back in the day. It was really hard to get into three-star restaurants. Get the reservation, then determine that the conference needs to be this weekend. So that's, that's, <laughs> how, that's how much food meant. So you grew up mainly in Dayton, Ohio? I grew up 18 years in Dayton, but then uh, I did go to Andover for prep school because my grandfather went to Yale, 1918. Right. He was discovered by Christian missionaries. The program was called Yale in China. And because my grandfather's grandfather was high up in the government, uh, government in a province, governor of a province. So had better access. So was your family from that province or from? Yeah, from Hunan. This Hunan? is about Hunan. Yeah. So my, yeah. yeah, yeah. My dad's dad was from Hunan. So he came to Yale, went back to China. Then, of course, a man named Mao Zedong came through the Cultural Revolution. He fled to Taipei, to Taiwan. Uh, my dad, one of four brothers, all ended up, well, two ended up at, three ended up at Yale. Um, they all fled to the States. They fortunately all got out. And funny enough, tomorrow night at this dinner in Milan is, is Shirley, uh, Shirley Young. Her, her grandfather flew my grandfather out during the Cultural Revolution. Wow. He was the pilot. That flew him out. Wow. And she's coming to this dinner tomorrow night. Is it, so is she, an, uh, is she an American? or she's she lives Chinese. In, she's Chinese. Oh, she's yeah, Chinese. She's Chinese. Yeah, and but, but, she's but in, she's, lives she lives in America. She lives and and she's in Italy just for She's in Italy, not just for my dinner. She happened to be here. And my dad just reconnected with her in L.A. literally last month. Um, you know, she's, I mean, I've, not, I've never met her. She must be, you know, my dad's 86, so I'm sure the same age. And um, so that's just very cool. 
That is very cool. Right. So, so what were you like at 12? What were you into at 12? Uh, I, I love sport. I played a lot of tennis. Um, tennis? Yeah, tennis was my first sport. Uh, I played all the way through Andover, uh, but then picked up squash, and then squash became my real sport. I ended up, I got to play, I played at Yale and played a couple years pro in France, which was, which, um, was a great hobby and made some money on the weekends when I was cooking when I was living in Paris. Uh, but I was always in the kitchen. I mean, I say this all the time. I was, still am, and will always be hungry. So as a kid, I realized if I hung out in the kitchen, grandparents or parents would throw you scraps. But I loved just watching them. I, I, I learned to sharpen cleavers at a very young age because uh, my grandfather, who was just my hero, he would grow. He, by, the, by that time, he was retired, lived in Dayton, Ohio, in an apartment close by. He grew cucumbers and his own pep, chili peppers. He'd make his own sambal, you know, la jiao. He'd make his own dumpling wrappers and noodles. And every Friday night in Dayton, Ohio, 5 p.m., we'd go for dinner at Yaya Nainai's at our grandparents. It was my favorite day of the week. And, and I spent, so I got to spend a lot of time with them, and I wish I spent twice as much time, three times more time. Because, you know, once they're gone, they're gone. And, and I'm blessed. And I tell my kids, look, you got living grandparents. My, my parents are still alive. And one of my mother's in law, mother-in-law is still alive. Just, just, just take advantage of that. Because so many children didn't know their grandparents at all. And, and both my parents still like to cook. Um, and that's, that really is, it's always what brought us back. And even when I was in Taipei, I, I lived there three months once when I was 13 to learn Chinese. Went to a school called Gori Zhirbal. And to hang out with my grandfather, walking down a place called Ximending in Taipei, where people would grab you to come in for the pot stickers and the, and the scallion bags. They literally grab you and seat you before you could say no. A dozen pot stickers are in front of you. And it cost like a dollar. I mean, it was, you lived like kings back then, right? I mean, it was so great to be American back then. And, uh, and I remember these. And I remember specifically this balza called Gobeli balza. Gobeli balza literally translates... This is so bad, not even a dog would eat it, right? <laughs> so not a great marketing name, uh, but they were the juiciest, super crispy pants here on one side, but a balza, not a pot sticker. And you would, you know, you always get juice all over you. And again, it'd be like a dollar for a dozen. And I just, I remember you sit on these plastic seats and everything's no sanitary dishes. You see them go in and out of a pail. Okay, the food, right. your grandparents were great cooks and your parents in Dayton, Ohio. I mean, you went to Taipei. Was it, was it a new revelation because of the product or was it very similar? Well, you know, I mean, I grew up going to Taipei. I mean, I literally went to Taipei almost every other summer. This is before my grandparents came to the States. So they lived there. So between ages 1 and 13 or 10 and 1 and 12, every other summer I go to Taipei. So it really is part of, I, I always ate Chinese street food. So, But how good was the approximation that your parents could do here in, in Ohio? Um, it's, 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 you could actually do better Chinese food here because the quality of the pork, the quality of the, the produce is better. Uh, and, you know, to make the dough is the same. It's all-purpose flour. So, um, honestly, you can make um, scallion pancakes and dumplings and everything almost even better in the, in, because it's better products. So, so you were at Andover, and then you went to Yale. And what did you study, and how did you then get in, get to France? And tell us all that party. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I studied mechanical engineering at Yale because that's just – what I wanted to be. I wanted to be like dad. And uh, uh, I actually had three rules growing up in my family. I have one brother who was two, two, year, two and a half years older who was also studying engineering, also went to Andorio. And uh, our rules were 
you can get any grades you want as long as they're straight A's. You can, <laughs> you can be anything you want as long as it's a doctor, lawyer, engineer, uh, and marry anyone you want. We prefer Chinese. Um, I'm over three. Not even close. Uh, however, my fantastic wife of 20 years, Polly, who is Caucasian, waspier than any wasp you'd ever meet from Dayton, Ohio, born in Dayton, Ohio, we never met, right? Literally a mile away from where I grew up. I grew up in Kettering. She grew up in Oakwood, across a big street called Dorothy Lane. We never met there, but her brother was my squash coach at Yale. Oh. And she, of all things, went to CU Boulder and studied Chinese. Just no. blindly, because wow. she just didn't want to study anything else. And she visited my sophomore year at Yale. So in 1983, I met her. And her David, my brother, who we named our first son after, said, look, there's this Chinese guy on my team who's pretty cool. He speaks Chinese. You might want to meet. We met. She really wanted nothing to do with me. And I kind of hounded her, followed her, traced her, tracked her, we'll call it what you want, for 10 years. And finally, after 10 years... Uh, and I was, I'm best friends with David, who's the squash coach. We finally ended up in San Francisco together. And um, we, um, she came to the restaurant where I was sous chef at Silks at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. And I guess the combination of being in a really good restaurant, eating a great meal, maybe some wine, and seeing me in a chef coat swayed her like, oh, I could eat well with this guy. So, I mean, <laughs> oh, charm factor. You're yeah, leaving uh, out of that. Yeah, the food uh, the food so, all right. So you study mechanics. Yeah, every summer I started going to Paris because, again, we had the, the French friends, the Mossart, Thierry and Pascal. So I had a free place to stay in Paris, which was a great, great, you know, I'm very grateful for that. And so the first year I went to Alliance Francaise to master French. I had Andover French, which was okay, but you live in France with a French family and then do stagiaires at a French restaurant. You speak French or you, you, you drown. You're done. Um, so I went to start doing stages. Then I went back after Southmere summer. So when, when did you really start uh, wanting to cook professionally? So by junior year, I'm in France. This time I go to Cordon Bleu for the summer. Three-month program, advanced. The one cuisine. in Paris. The one in Paris. The original, the Champ yeah. de Mars, the original. Um, only taught in French. And uh, I did advanced cuisine because I had enough skills, knife skills and, you know, wok-stirring skills, yeah. but the same translate to saute skills. Right. And I did beginning pastries. And that was amazing because pastries, we don't have anything like that in Chinese cuisine. It's just a revelation. Just, you make your first crème pâtissière, your crème anglaise, I mean, pâte fouillette. You're like, oh, my God, this stuff's amazing. And that's when I said, you know what? I want to be a chef. Not only do I want to, I immediately thought, not only do I want to be a chef, I want to blend French techniques with Chinese techniques. Because I think both of the, I did, in my humble opinion, I know we're in Italy, the Chinese and French are the two best cuisines in the world. And Italy and Japan are such a close second. I mean, I, we're, we're really picking straws. And I know Jose Andres says, hey, hey, Spain. I mean, what am I, chop liver? Yeah, 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 exactly. No, you're pate, dude. Um, so, I mean, but again, I'm totally biased. Right. But, but I, I called it Chinese cuisine, French Chinese. And so uh, before I graduated, uh, I told my parents, you know, and, and they knew. They knew I had a knack. They knew I had a love, a passion for food. And, and so, there you blame them. They were taking. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And my mom, if you've ever seen her on my show, she is so brilliant and gregarious. She's like, oh, son, that's awesome. You're so lucky. At such a young age, you actually know what you want to do, and you follow your passion, your dream. Go cook. You know, just promise you give 110%. We love you. Go for it. And I looked at my dad. Same conversation. Who's much more pensive. You know, he's, a, he's literally a genius. I mean, he's one of the only geniuses I personally have known. He looked up to me and goes, son. You weren't going to be a very good engineer anyway. Go cook. <laughs> I'm like, wow. 
tell me what you really think, Dad. And uh, but he's right. If you don't love something, you're not going to be good at That's it. Love what you, you do. Know? That's love what you do. So that literally two days after graduating from Yale, I'm on a plane to Paris, and uh, and that's where I got to. So luckily, get to work for Pierre Hermé of Fouchon in the petit, in the twenty two pastry cook downstairs kitchen, and that's where I saw. How did you get in there? Uh, that wasn't it was, easy. No, it wasn't easy. It was, you know, the, again, my French friends, Thierry, they knew someone who knew someone, and I spoke enough French, which yeah. is their first question, you know, can you communicate? And, you know, and just, just you know, please, s'il vous plaît. You know, you How know. many hours did you work? Oh, I worked a week. I, I mean, I, again, I had the charm life because I would work five days a week. I would get there at 5 or sometimes 6 a.m. So I'd work a full shift. It wasn't crazy. Um, I'd work like an eight or nine hour shift because three weeks into that, uh, and I wasn't getting paid. I was a stagiaire at Fouchon, right? Uh, I eventually became a patient cook. In the beginning, I didn't get paid. Um, the uh, eating in the cafeteria, which is an awesome cafeteria because it's all the one and two day old traiteur cuisine, which are, you know, stuffed ducks with foie gras and, you know, salmon on the coulibiac sandwich, you know, brioche dough. I mean, it was not, it was amazing food. It was full show food, right? Um, but they would always get calls and they would literally, the, someone would call looking for an extra. They needed a cook. So they would literally, the phone would ring and someone would like, hey, Kevin, you know, I'm like, what, is, what was it? You know, my French wasn't awesome, but I asked one of my cook friends, they're like, they're looking for an extra. I'm like, what's that? Well, it's working at this, I don't know what restaurant, but to go worker service and they'll pay you en noir, right? Gagne en noir under the table, like two or 300 francs, which was real money, right? Because I wasn't getting anything. And so I'm like, oh, we. And so I went to Natasha that night. And Natasha's is, uh, Russian, the patron is Russian French, uh, named Natasha. She had this cool little, is a, a restaurant branché, as they said, which is a la mode. So, no tourists, but all the French artists and authors, and like when Simply Red was in or Prince, they would eat there. So, it's a really small 60 seat restaurant. And Jean Marc was this great chef there, really young. I mean, I'm 21, no, 20, and he's only 26. And we got along like that. He really wanted to learn about Chinese. And I really want to learn about French. And, and literally the next day, so I worked there. He liked me. He says, yeah, uh, demain. And so, so then, so now he's doing doubles. So I worked at Fauchon in the mornings. I get off at 3, and I get to Natasha by 5, and then I work till 2. And I do that for five days a week, and then I would get on a train and then go to play a pro squash tournament Saturday, Sunday. No. And I repeat. But it was awesome because the pro squash tournament got me all over France. Bordeaux, Aix-en-Provence, Toulouse, uh, Marseille. But you didn't everywhere. have any time to practice during the week. I mean, do, yeah. But you had plenty of physical. Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> but you know what? But those two hours in between, I played. I ran. I would run 600s and stuff and play. Yeah, absolutely. If you, it was the best life ever. If anyone ever dreamt that they want to be like Ming Zai, no way. <laughs> you just, we just heard. I mean, that's, that's superhuman. You, when did you sleep? So how, much, how much do you sleep? Oh, I, I still don't sleep. Oh, I sleep five or six. I don't need sleep. You don't need sleep. Who needs sleep? Who needs sleep? You catch up in the sleep the first day you're dead. You uh, will. Yeah, that's, you know? that's true. I mean, like, you know, I have my crew here. We're like, you guys want, you know, are you tired? You want to go? What do you mean? We just got to Milan. Of course we're going out. I mean, they're just, you're here. You're Wimps. not going to sleep. Wimps. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Dave Arnold from Cooking Issues, and I'm here to talk to you about the Museum of Food and Drink, which is finally getting a brick-and-mortar space right here in Brooklyn, New York. 
So the Museum of Food and Drink is opening the MOFAD Lab, our first laboratory and gallery space, where we will be putting on an exhibition called Making It or Faking It, the history of the flavor industry. And it tackles a very important uh, topic, which is how the food system got to be the way it is now uh, as a result of the intervention of the flavor industry, how that happened. Get your tickets at tickets.mofad.org to come see the first exhibit ever of the Museum of Food and Drink at the MOFAD Lab, brought to you by Infinity on 62 Bayard Street. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story, and today our guest is Ming Zai, but we're sitting in Milan, and we've just um, finished your tour of duty maybe in France. When, when you, All right, why did you leave France, and when you came back, what was your journey? So I, came, I left France. I so didn't want to leave France. I had this great life, uh, a, a fantastic British girlfriend, Nikki. I just, I was, I just was so Did torn. you enjoy the pro circuit? Oh, it's so fun being a pro athlete. And we made nothing, right? I mean, I could play, if I got to the semis or finals, I'd make like, you know, 3,000 francs or 4,000. So it'd be like 1,000. It was enough money to pay for the train ride, the hotel, and the bar bill, and then maybe I have a few hundred dollars left over. But it was a great way to to meet people and see the country. Because when you go and play squash tournaments, the locals take you out. So you never, ever go to a touristy place. You go to the place. Now, can I tell you a great story? So we were in Rouen. And I'm with my two expat friends. So there's, you know, the Kiwis, the Aussies, the Brits, the, the Swedes. They're all really good in squash. And we'd always end up meeting in the semis. The good news is the French were horrible at squash. That's the only reason I was in the top <laughs> ten, right? Now they're good. But back then, because otherwise, because I was not even close to being top 100 pro in this country, to be honest. Um, but in France at that time, they were horrible, thank God. So they took us to this one bistro. And we all sat down, a long table, like 20 of us, and all the French locals like smirking, like they all swallowed a cat or a rat or something. I'm like, what's going on? We all looked at my friends, we don't know. And this well-dressed tuxedo guy, black apron, comes, oh, bonsoir, blah, 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 says, so this is special and everything and all this stuff. And we take the order, and he walks away, he is butt naked. We look around, <laughs> every waiter is butt naked. And that was the shtick of this restaurant. This gay, these two gay guys own the restaurant. <laughs> And their whole stick was they served everyone naked. And we just thought, oh, we just we could not stop laughing about it. So you don't get that experience. In Rouen. In Rouen, yeah. Maybe see, in Paris. You don't get experience. Marseille. Like, but crazy. Yeah. We're like, oh, that's oh funny. God. So the reason I left Paris is I ended up going to Cornell to the hotel school. So I ended up getting a master's. So, okay. So was that your idea? Was it, Did you were pleasing was, your parents? That was, that was both. Um, I knew I wanted to be a chef owner one day. Right. I knew... I needed to learn everything else besides cooking in the business. Yes. And there were two schools. I actually got accepted to Lausanne. So I graduated in 1986. I got accepted to Lausanne like class of 1994. I'm like, what am I? Yeah, I got deferred. I'm like, just say no, guys. I mean, and Lausanne would not have been as good for me. Um, It would have been great and took the cooking part. Um, but Cornell really had more of what I needed, which is the marketing, the accounting, reading right. and P&L, the, 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 just the design of hotels, restaurants, all right. that. Right. Um, so it was a great master's program. Um, the best, of course, is, <coughs> excuse me, is you get to meet the people. You get to meet some of the, the best professors. Um, you get to meet some of the, you know, you get to meet the top in the industry. And um, so that really set me then up for, okay, 
and I was not a great chef. I was I was a solid cook. Uh, I was you know. On my resume, honestly, I said I was a sous chef, Natasha. There was three of us in the kitchen. There's a dishwasher, garmanger. There's a <laughs> chef and me. So I was a cook, but I was a sous chef. I was number yes. two. Anyway, um, I after you know, once you graduate Cornell, I said, well, I might as well work in the hotel business and let's let's apply this. So I ended up opening the Hotel Intercontinental in Chicago as the assistant F and B, and then became F and B director. And that was just a great experience. But after two years, I hated it. I hated not cooking. I wanted to just be breaking down fish and sauteing and cooking. Uh, I had this creativeness I had to get out. Uh, and I actually hated the hotel business because it was all about kissing up to the general manager. And we had a particular Austrian, myonical, narcissistic general manager, which I think all Austrian general managers are in every hotel country, in every hotel in the world. Uh, it's Dor- just over the mountains <laughs> there. Yeah, I know. Shandor Stangl, right? Even the name sounds narcissist. Anyway, uh, and it's, you know, like I get the call at 5 in the morning and the room service order is like, where are you? I'm like, sleeping, right? I mean, <laughs> where are you? Not the hotel and the boat, you know, vice president. And it's like, you know, so after that, I'm like, you know, I, this is for the birds. I need to go back cooking. And that's how I ended up as sous chef. I got a job a little over my head, I have to admit, as a cook, because I, you know, I was a really good cook. I wasn't quite sous chef, but because I had, you know, hold the Excel spreadsheet stuff and the the knowledge of P and Ls and 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 a fast learner, I became sous chef at Silks in the Mandarin, um, and that started my chef career. And so I never not cooked since then. So after Silk, after the Mandarin, I then opened a restaurant with, uh, in Palo Alto called Ginger Club. That that was that was a brief six month thing, and then going to Santa Cafe in Santa Fe, uh, which was the best restaurant in Santa Fe, and that was my first executive chef job, and loved it. And I brought the first James Beard dinner to San to New Mexico, where I had Junie as ZMC, Don Pintabona from Tribeca Girl, Ken Oranger from Silks, who we worked together with. Uh, uh, Gary Robbins from Asia, which used to be a great East-West restaurant in New York City. Uh, I don't know where Gary is these days. Michael Guignor brought all the foie gras. And Sousa Lee, who I got to meet for the first time, who is really one of my best friends now with Ken Oranger. Sousa and Pinto I just saw recently in Tampa. Uh, Sousa is really one of the best East-West chefs in the world. I mean, he's amazing and so skilled. And uh, so that was a great meal. And so then Santa Cafe, about two years. And then from there... Um, I realized I needed to be my own. I needed to be a chef owner. So we started looking everywhere. We first went, I actually first went to Paris and London to see if I wanted to open there. Uh, fortunately, nothing really panned out. Um, and then we started really thinking about it. We're like, do we really want to be so far away? We wanted to have children from grandparents and stuff. And the answer was no. So we wanted to be stateside. I had a great offer. I'll tell you the quick story because uh, I think we have guests showing up. Um, Don't worry, they're drinking. Okay, good. So are we. So are we. <laughs> no, don't tell them. Okay. We are. We got some nice red wine here. Or yes, Milan. When in Rome. Or Milan. So I had a great service. We did like 350 dinners. The Santa Cafe was busy as hell in the summer. And this guy comes to the bar with glasses. He's like, hey, chef had a great meal. Uh, love to talk about opening a restaurant in Vegas. Now, I have to preface this with two weeks before this, my wife had the conversations like, we need to get out of Dodge. This is just for the birds. We just can't raise family here. And there's lots of reasons. But there's really the animosity between the Native Americans and the Mexicans and then all the rich Caucasians. It just didn't mix, right? It's just for the obvious reasons. And, And we didn't want to be in the desert. So she said, okay, I'll go anywhere in the world you want. We just can't move from a bleeping desert to a bleeping desert, which basically means no Vegas. Uh, so this guy still said, I want to do something in Vegas. But, you know, my dad trains. Just listen to every opportunity. You don't know. So he says, look, 
we're doing a this great new project. It's going to be just monstrosity. You can spend up to $5 million building out your own restaurant with no risk. We're going to give you 10% on revenue. Give you, give you five cents. So I was making 75000 a time. I was going to make a half a million plus if the restaurant was only okay. I mean, it was just ridiculous. I never heard of these numbers. And I'm like, sir, that's just a ridiculous offer. But for personal reasons, I, I, I unfortunately have to decline. He goes, well, that's okay. My name is Steve Wynn. I'm opening up the Bellagio. If you change your mind, let me know. <laughs> and, so, and, and Todd English got that spot, which is really the best spot with the fountain at the Bellagio, where Olives is. And the rest. And now of we know what Todd got paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. It's his best. It's his most profitable restaurant in his whole portfolio, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, but no regrets because because – because of all that, and we looked at, we decided we needed a place with a Chinatown for quality of life, yeah. for getting my products I need for my cuisine cheaply. Because in Santa Fe, bok choy is like eight bucks a pound. I'm like, bok choy is 80 cents a pound. So that was stupid. Um, and we settled on Boston. And that's how Blue Ginger started. So a San Francisco that has a very large population or in New York City. We looked at both. We could not afford to buy a home in San Francisco, right? Dot coms are crazy. And we didn't want to live in. Berkeley or beyond yes. to work in San Francisco. And my food is already popular, my style of food. So build where there's no competition. Did right? you know people in Boston? is the one who, and Todd English. Yeah. I knew both of them. They're like, yeah. dude, come to Boston. You, and Todd, I give Todd great credit because Todd was in Wellesley with the Figs where my brother lived. And he's like, dude, I make a lot of money selling pizza. You do your food in Wellesley, you will crush it. Because there wasn't any good restaurants, period. Todd was the best restaurant. It was a pizzeria. Um, so because of Todd's saying, my brother who lived in Wellesley, they found the Wellesley Market, right. which was already a for rent for like eight months, and it was a perfect large space with walk-in coolers and and. Okay, so talk so talk a little bit about the business because you had gone to uh, Cornell. You're really, you know, you you knew the whole chef thing down. You opened a hotel, yeah, right? You knew it. So did you capitalize well? Did you was yeah. was your business plan good right from the start? It was because of the Cornell train, but more importantly because I opened four different restaurants in the hotel. So I did four restaurant openings. And when you do restaurant openings, the cream rises to the top. So you see what it takes to open a restaurant and you see where to spend the money. You see where at that time where the Intercontinental lost so much money because they had change order, change order, change order, change order. So I swore to myself, when I opened my restaurant, no change orders, do design build, which is I learned at Cornell. Because if you, you know, just a, a curved banquette, five times more expensive than a straight banquette. Well, being my first restaurant, we're going to go straight, right? Linoleum ground in the bathroom versus tile saves me five times. We're going linoleum, right? So I built my restaurant, a 120-seat restaurant, the budget was $500,000. I raised half of it through an SBA loan and half of it through $25,000 investors, which I told which some of my family and my brother and great friends from college and whatnot. I said, look, you have to know that you could lose 100% of this and you're not getting it back. So if you can't afford to lose 25 Gs, do not give it to me. And by the way, you get no votes. You get nothing. You are a silent partner, but please invest. Can I ask uh, they, what they made on their 25 Oh, they made three hundred percent. Yeah, they're they're fine. Everyone did really well. Uh, I was lucky, but you know, I mean, we 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 were profitable the first month. It was it was because there was no not East West restaurant was it? There's just no good restaurant. You think you think young chefs, if they're smart, can do that today? Yes, as long as you. Everyone has to. Everyone wants to open their dream restaurant, but that. Sh- 
probably won't be your first one because you can't spend that much money. This is one thing I did. I opened with enough cash flow that I could cover payroll for two months with zero covers. Because what happens is, and this is why restaurants close in the first year, is they're late opening. So they've already budgeted, well, we're going to do 200 covers every night, blah, blah, blah. But they're now five months late, six months late, so they didn't get that. So they already burned through all their cash. Then, then they're in a hole. So then they said, okay, this, so now you have extra pressure. Now we have to do 240 covers tonight. And then they do 180. So then, okay, well, let's, let's buy choice beef instead of prime beef. And then it's that downward spiral, and you never get out of it. So, so start small. Start with cash because you most, I mean, I was so lucky, and I know that, but you, most restaurants aren't going to be busy out the door. And by the way, I wasn't on TV then. No one, my chef friends knew me, but that was it. No one in Wellesley knew me. They just knew I was a restaurant. Um, the one thing that I will say, and knocking with, I still am on TV, you being popular, you get to you get every customer once because they're driving through Wellesley. Oh, they saw me on TV, and now they come. But you still have to offer an amazing experience at a great value. You get them the first time. If you don't do it well, they're gone too. And now with social media, you're really gone. How hard was it to open a Chinese restaurant where people didn't think it was? Well, it wasn't Chinese, Chinese, right? It was East West. It was yes, yeah. but East West was a new concept. It was a new concept, and so you know it. Was that difficult, or you know, or had, did it catch had, on? Right, it like caught that. on quickly because we used we just used great product solid technique and it was a great value. But you were but, one of the first ever to do that, yeah, right? But but and you know so what? It, was, it was still it was you still had to re-educate the dining. It was, but it was still there was still a steak and potato dish that was just done my way, right? It just wasn't mashed potatoes a piece of meat, right? It was done with you know what fermented black bean this and bok choy that and but but it was still steak with a starch so what was the best review that you got and what was the worst review you got opening that um, that year because a mean, lot of our listeners are chefs you yeah, know young yeah. chefs oh yeah for sure oh, no the, the, yeah. i had two great reviews the boston globe gave us three stars out the door um Corby, uh not Corby, uh allison arnett uh that was a fantastic review and to get three stars there we were so happy uh and then um uh i was anointed chef of the year by by esquire by John Mariani. And it was good because Mario became friends because we were both on Food Network. We were both, uh, we were both were elected to, uh, as uh, best new restaurant for the James Beard Foundation because he opened Babu same year. And he won best new restaurant in the country. And I was happy to be included in that group of eight or ten restaurants. But then we were both also in the Esquire issue, but I got chef of the year. Uh, and that and the party for that was at Babo. So it's kind of all full circle. So we, we joke about it. Um, and, and but to, to quote Mario Batali. Are you the same age? Yeah, basically, I'm basically, sure. Basically, yeah. yeah. Um, Joined but, at birth. But he has the best thing about all these accolades and awards. I love Mario Stem. He goes, awards are awesome if you win them. Otherwise, I don't give a flying hoot about it, <laughs> which is true, right? Because it doesn't make me a better chef that I won this or won that. It really doesn't. Uh, so those are the two best. So we're, funny enough, the Wellesley College that first year, I got two bananas. That's how they rated their restaurants. Two bananas. They're just they they're, but we're talking about like a sophomore in college was, yes, was right, grading right, me. Yeah, like the, the steak was raw, right? It was just medium rare. It was saignon. It was French saignon. The steak he couldn't even cook a steak. It was, I'm like it was a really mean review. But, <laughs> two but, bananas. Two bananas. I know. I mean, I don't even think Mario got two bananas. 
So tell me, we're getting to the, actually, we've got the guests outside and, you know, we've, we're going in overtime, but I just have to, um, you know, uh, some part of your career. I mean, you're just such an incredibly fine chef and TV, I think has a way of distorting that, um, that people sometimes see people on TV and they don't know what a high quality chef, you hope that it comes through in the program. You've been on TV for so long. You've watched the industry grow. Um, tell us your feeling about what are the pros and what are the cons? Because you, you hear it all over. It's yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pros are what I said earlier. People will try your restaurant once because they see you. It says, okay, let's, let's go try Blue Dragon, my new joint, two years old now. Um, because they, they're in Boston. They know my name. They saw Simply Ming, and they come try. The, the challenge is... And the people will say this to my face. This better be the best meal I've ever had in my life. Because they just assume I'm in the black box, I'm the authority, and this better be awesome. So they have a chip on their shoulder. And, you know, and I always joke, well, I hope you just ate at McDonald's. No offense to McDonald's, right? But I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to lower your bar. And uh, so there is. And, and nowadays, with the foodies, because I actually say, what the F is a foodie? And also, well, not everyone else in the world, but so do everyone else, most yes. people. Yeah. I mean, and you have the power of, you know, Twitter and this and that, and you can take me down, and I mean, right? And it's and people get really nasty. And they really think, they go, well, you don't comp this meal, I'm going to tell all of my 400 friends. You know, I mean, like, people threaten you with that. It's like, look. We're doing the best we can. We think this is fine. You know, I mean, it's, so that that is, I mean, you can talk to every chef. There's, what really annoys us, and I do it quickly. I mean, I love taking pictures of food, but boom, boom, done. The people that literally take pictures of food and then start blogging it there. I'm like, dude, eat your food. Right. It's getting cold. It's okay to take a quick picture, but then enjoy your food. It's ruining people's dining experience. And I don't care that you know the nuance and this and that. Eat your food. Then write about it. Right? Don't ruin your dress. You just you're spending a lot of money. Fifty bucks, sixty, eighty, hundred, whatever. First of all, that's not Eat. dining. No, it's not. It's not having the experience. Yeah, then these guys. I guess you can be a platinum. I guess Yelper, and they get free T-shirts and yeah, this stuff and coupons. And like, I don't care. So what's your, what's your message on your show? What do you want? I you know. My show. Yeah. My show, simply Ming is about getting people to cook simply. Right? Enjoy. I mean, I really think there's a huge issue in this country. The family fabric of this country is so deteriorated. So many families do not sit down at 6 or 7 o'clock and eat a meal together. That's a travesty. I used to sit down at 5.30, 5 o'clock with my grandparents, at 5.30 in Dayton, Ohio with my brother, mom, and dad. Everything went down at the dinner table. Right? Always sat down. We always talked about grades, who were dating, who were not dating, about everything, vacation, this, what problems. Everything happened at the dinner table. Now it's ballet and soccer and this and that, and no one sits down. And they and, and people aren't eating well. People are buying everything to go and packaged and processed and this. And the whole art of cooking, the smell of the food in the home, that that's the glue of, should be the glue of America. It's the glue of a family, though. If you do that as a family with your children... Uh, that will keep the family together. That will keep America, that will keep the world together. I, I always say, and this is why I love being a, a state course chef, you know, which is what Hillary Clinton started, that when I go to a foreign country, there's a lot of us there, that they're using us as diplomacy. Uh, you know, I was honored to cook for now the president of China with, with, Vice, Pre- with uh, Vice President Biden and Madam Secretary Clinton, and she actually pulled me aside later after the, that meal, and she said, 
um, that first she loved the meal and she said, this is really going to help our negotiations today. And sure enough, a week later, I get it through email through the State Department that we are so happy how that went. We're going to start the state course chef thing because we really think and think about it. And if you're hangry or hungry, you're not going to make sound decisions. You're going to be a little more aggressive. And, and, and if you can, and by the way, we showed respect to that visiting president. So I cooked Chinese style, right? I wasn't going to put Japanese influence food there. So there we thought it through. So here's it. We didn't do a salad first course, right? Because Chinese don't eat raw vegetables. We did a great sweet potato soup with a duck confit. Chinese love duck. So we really thought it through what he would enjoy. But it wasn't just Chinese food. So he appreciated that thought was put in. It wasn't just chicken. It was thought put into the meal to represent his own likings and tasting, but something different. And that helped. What did your parents think that you got to cook at that level? Oh, my, my dad came to it. My mom did not. My dad uh, is so proud. Just so proud. And probably, he was probably thinking, thank God you didn't go to be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think on that note, we've got to end right. this. We've got, we, we've got a lot of hungry Thanks, people Lori. out there. Thank, thank you. This was so wonderful. Real pleasure. Thank Real pleasure. You. And as always, peace and good eating. Peace and good eating, and thank you, and thanks to our producers, Jack Innes, and we'll see you next time. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.